Well, today is Palm Sunday. And today, what that means is that it marks the the last seven days of the life of Jesus. Today would be the day that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem. And then five days later would be the day that he would be crucified on the cross, which we celebrate as Good Friday. And then next Sunday is the day that Jesus would be, uh, would resurrect from the grave, uh, which we also call Resurrection Sunday. I want to set the scene for us today as we look at Mark chapter 11 on this Palm Sunday. Um, this, the scene is this, that there's a lot of people surrounding Jesus and they're shouting something. And what I want you to know is that on this Palm Sunday, the crowd were, were mainly people uh, from Galilee. These were uh, Jews from Galilee that would make this long pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem for what they would call the Passover feast. It was one of the three most highly celebrated and highly attended uh, festivals throughout the year. And so you have um, in a city that some scholars say is about 40,000 people in Jerusalem at the time. When it's Passover, it could be up to six times that. And so you have hundreds of thousands of people from, you know, kind of all over the place, but mainly from uh, Galilee, Jews who have seen Jesus do miracles, who have experienced his power and his teaching, and they would come to celebrate this Passover. What they would do, though, on this pilgrimage is they would sing certain songs. There was a tradition that when you would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover, there there were these songs called the Hallel Psalms. It was from Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, and they would kind of sing this over and over uh, on their way until they actually reached Jerusalem. And what we find here today is that these people um, on Palm Sunday uh, were singing these songs that end in Psalm 118. They're waving their palm branches, and they're, they're looking at Jesus and shouting to Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. But we call this Palm Sunday Um, not just because people were waving palm branches and laying it at the feet of Jesus, but it was symbolic of something. And so I think this is where the context would help. You got to ask the question, why palm branches? For one, palm branches, according to the Old Testament, were used for uh, festive reasons. One of the passages we find this is in Leviticus chapter 23, Verse 39, I'm going to read this to you. It says, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day of the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And so what Leviticus is saying is that the Jews traditionally would gather uh, palm branches, and they would wave it, and they would rejoice before God uh, for seven days with it. And so it was a symbol of celebration of what God did with Israel, leading them out of Egypt and giving them freedom. It was a festive thing. But not only was the palm branches a festive thing, later the palm branches actually became a national, uh, a symbol of national victory. It was a symbol of national victory. 200 years before Jesus, the Jews actually had won a national victory in which they actually regained their temple back. And they were able to go about their worship. They had regained their temple. And, they, and so in celebration of that, they would actually get these palm branches. And not only waving it in celebration, but they would wave it in, in victory. It was a national victory 
for the Jews. Uh, in studying this passage, the memory that came to mind for me was when I was an undergrad student years ago, uh, early 2000s, and I was an undergrad student at the University of Southern California, and I had the privilege of going to some of the football games uh, during my time there at the Los Angeles Coliseum, filled with thousands of people uh, cheering on our USC football team. And I brought you something that from home that um, people that would go to these football games would bring with them, all right? So I don't know how well or if you can see this from where you are and how well you can see this, but this is a victory sign for the USC football team. And if you go to the LA Coliseum, you're going to see thousands of people packing out LA Coliseum, raising, if they didn't have this, they would just use their own fingers and hold up these two fingers as a sign of victory, right? And I actually got one for my son. If you got small hands, they got smaller ones too. But th- this, would be a, this would be a sign of victory. And so when we go to these football games, thousands of people, students from USC would gather together. We didn't even know who they are. But in that moment, we're one because we're all waving this victory sign, right? And as the football team would make their entrance, make their way onto the field, they would see thousands of students cheering them on with our victory signs for them. And, you know, it's not just because we have 11 national championships or 37 conference championships, you know, or, 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 or three division titles, seven Heisman Trophy winners, right? It's not just because we have 35 people inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame or 13 undefeated seasons. That's part of it. But the reason why we do this is because when the team is coming out, This is symbolic of our expectation of victory. We're cheering them on, and we're expecting victory. And so, as silly as that was, please forgive me, all this to say that the palm branches on that day when Jesus entered Jerusalem became a symbol of national victory. The palm branches weren't a a decoration for that day. The palm branches weren't a decoration. If anything, the palm branches, palm branches were a declaration. It was a declaration that another victory was coming for the Jews, but this time it wasn't Egypt, like in the days of Moses. This time the victory they thought and they expected was against Rome. They saw Rome and they saw the oppression that the Roman Empire had brought And so these Jews from Galilee saw Rome as their biggest problem. And so as these Jews from Galilee would come and make their pilgrimage to to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, they would be singing these songs from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And there's there's a phrase at the end of this psalm, in Psalm 118, 25, there's a phrase there that says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Psalm 118, 25, they would actually sing this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. They're not singing it in English. They're singing it in their language. And when you read Psalm 118, 25 in the original language in Hebrew, that phrase is actually one word. And it's the word hoshiyana. Right? Hoshiyana. When you translate hoshiyana into the New Testament language, the word you get is hosanna. Hosanna. This is only mentioned in the Old Testament in Psalm 118.25. 
And the only other time Hosanna is mentioned in all of the Bible is in the story of Palm Sunday, when the Jews would gather hundreds and thousands of people watching Jesus enter Jerusalem. They're singing Hosanna. They're singing Hosanna. And what they're saying is, save us, we pray, O Lord. But this time, what used to be just a plea has now become a praise. Because what they're saying is not just save us, O Lord. When they're shouting Hosanna to Jesus, they're actually saying he will save us. He's going to save us. These were Galileans who saw Jesus do incredible things. They saw him do miracles. And so they thought, you know, and they expected that Jesus would overthrow the Roman Empire. So far, so good. That, that's, just, that's just setting the scene for us. And so this is what's happening as Jesus is entering the scene. And so what I want to do is I want to walk you through a few things, just three things that I think the scripture invites us to see today. And number one is this, that I think this passage invites us to see God's control. God's control. And what I mean by that, that is, is wherever Jesus is, he's always in control. That wherever Jesus is, he's always in control. I want you to look with me to Mark chapter 11, this passage again in verse 1, where it says, Jesus sent, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And then verse 2, and then he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. I want you to notice in this passage that you got this incredible crowd. They're expecting something. They're, they're making a lot of noise. But on the other side, Jesus is up to something. He's got a plan. God has a plan. Notice in these verses, who's listening to who? Notice who's listening to who. The disciples, for one, listen to Jesus. They aren't listening to the crowds. They're listening to Christ. But not only the disciples, but I want you to notice that even the cult, and Jesus says to the disciples, go find a cult. You're going to find one that's never been ridden before, that's never been untied before, which means that this cult has never been trained. This cult is unpredictable. But the reason why Jesus says go find that one is because Jesus is in control. So not only do the disciples listen to Jesus, but even the cult listens to Jesus. Even this cult obeys Jesus. Why? Because this cult is ultimately part of God's plan. By requesting this cult, actually Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy about himself in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so what's happening is disciples listen to Jesus. Even the colt is listening to Jesus. And then you read on and there's people in the village. They're watching the disciples untie the colt and they're asking, what are you guys doing? 
And then they said that Jesus needs it. The Lord needs it. And by the way, that's kind of, um, might be a fun way if you like want to borrow someone from something, something from someone, just say the Lord needs it, right? If you want to borrow a car, just say the Lord needs it. But the disciples basically say the Lord needs it. That's all they had. And the villagers obeyed. They listened. They let this cult go, right? And so what we find in this passage is that not only do the disciples obey, the cult obeys, even the villagers obey Jesus. And we see in other passages that not only do the disciples obey, but the waves obey Jesus. Creation obeys Jesus. And here's what I want to say, that wherever Jesus is, he's in control. Wherever Jesus is, he's in control. And you know why this matters? This matters to us because when life gets noisy and life seems to be out of control, how do you respond? Where do you lean in? And I want you to know that how noisy life gets, how out of control life gets, Jesus is in control. And no matter how loud the crowd, this passage teaches us that followers of Jesus lean into Christ. And no matter how loud the crowd, followers of Jesus lean in to Christ. One of my prayers for you, church, is that during this pandemic, that we as followers, no matter how loud the crowd, we would lean into Christ. That during this pandemic, that the words of Christ would be closer and the words of Christ would be sweeter to you than ever before. I want you to know today that in this situation in your life, that God's in control. The second thing I think this passage invites us to see is not only that God is in control, that Jesus is in control, but I think it invites us to see the character of God. It invites us to see the character of Jesus, that Jesus is both meek and he's humble. And I find this in Mark chapter 11, in verse 7, how Jesus enters Jerusalem. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches, and they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And so you got these crowds shouting, Hosanna in the highest. He's going to save us. And the reason why they're shouting and singing, Hosiana, Hosanna, he's going to save us, is because they had an expectation of Jesus. Now hear me out. It's because they wanted something from Jesus. They wanted something from Jesus. You know, when I became a parent, I learned something about toddlers. You know, when toddler, toddlers cry, I learned that when they cry, that it's not always the same. I've learned that, that toddlers have two kinds of crying. One is called real, and the other is called fake. And they have a fake cry, and they have a real cry. Amen by myself. And, and, and here, here's how you know, right? Maybe parents could understand this a little bit more. But here's how you know a real cry and a fake cry. And it's not that hard, but it, but it took me time to see it. A real cry actually has tears. And tears actually flow from their eyes. But a fake cry has loud sound, but no tears. Fake cries have sound, and it could be a loud sound, 
but they have no tears. I learned that uh, when toddlers cry, a fake cry, they're not crying because they feel something. They're crying because they want something. And the minute you, they, they get what they want, they stop crying. Right, parents? And that, that's kind of what's going on here. The Jews from Galilee on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they're waving their palm branches in expectation of a victory over Rome, saying that Jesus is going to do it. And so Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, they thought and they expected Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire. But the thing is that in those days, if, if you... If you were a king-like figure coming into a town to overthrow another king, you wouldn't come on a colt. You would actually come with chariots and you would come on war horses with the sword to, to symbolize your power and to symbolize force. Sinclair Ferguson says that no doubt many of them had seen generals enter Rome in triumph to receive their accolades of victory. But Jesus doesn't do that. What does Jesus do? Jesus enters Jerusalem on a colt. Hear me out. You see, when the crowds were shouting at him for what he can do, Jesus wanted them to know what he was like. When they're singing Hosanna and Hosanna in the highest, and they're, they're, they're shouting at Jesus for what he can do, Jesus takes this moment to show what he is like, his character. And while everyone is shouting their praises, notice that Jesus doesn't ride with the crowds. He rides on a colt. And I don't know about you, but if you're in a place where everyone is applauding you and praising you and celebrating you and saying, you the man or you the woman, the harder thing to do is to be humble. The easy thing to do is to go with the crowd. I know for me, If people were praising me the way they did with Jesus that moment, it would be easier for me to ride with the crowds, to go with the flow, to say thank you on the outside, but to be full of pride on the inside. You see, the harder work is to be meek. The harder work is to be humble. Do you you see how different Jesus is? That he doesn't ride with the crowds, but he comes riding on a colt. When the crowds are declaring his highness, Jesus shows us his meekness. When the crowds are declaring his royalty, Jesus shows us his humility. He doesn't come on chariots and war horses. He doesn't come flaunting his power and force. He comes in meekness and he comes in humility. This passage invites us to see Jesus, to see his character, to see how trustworthy he is, to see how gentle he is, to see that he's meek, to see that he's humble. And I think this this is what separates Jesus at the center of Christianity from every other religion. There's a pastor named Mark Dever in a book called It Is Well. I'm going to read you this quote. He says, In no other manner are there differences between Muslims and Christians more sharply contrasted than in the difference between the characters and legacies of their prophets. Perhaps the contrast is best symbolized by the way Muhammad entered Mecca and Jesus entered Jerusalem. Muhammad rode into Mecca on a war horse, surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Those who greeted him were absorbed into his movement. 
those who resisted him were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad entered or conquered Mecca and took control as its new religious, political, and military leader. And today, in the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, Turkey, Muhammad's purported sword is proudly on display. But Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, accompanied by 12 disciples. He was welcomed and greeted by people waving palm branches. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because the Jews mistook him for an earthly, secular king who was to free them from the yoke of Rome, whereas Jesus came to establish a much different heavenly kingdom. Jesus came by invitation and not by force. And so what we see in Palm Sunday today as Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a colt, we see that he's meek and we see that he's humble. In this time in the pandemic, one of the invitations of God is for you to come and see what he's like. There's a lot of noise in the crowd. There's a lot of noise as soon as you turn on TV. Everyone's saying different things. There's, there's a lot of movement. But in this time, perhaps God is inviting you closer to him to know that he's in control and to see his character. But the last thing I want to point out here in this passage is this. that Not only is it about God's control and God's character, but it's about God's compassion. It's about the compassion of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem, that in his compassion for the world, he did not come to defeat Rome. Jesus came to die on the cross. Mark chapter 11, verse 11 says, he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem. He entered Jerusalem, not to defeat Rome, but to die on the cross. You know what's fascinating is that in my study, I came to see that on the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem, on the day that was known as as Palm Sunday, was also a day known as Lamb Selection Day. Because in five days, they would celebrate the Passover. And what, what they would do on this particular day called Lamb Selection Day, which is five days before the Passover, this is the day that they would choose the lamb that would be slain in celebration of the Passover. And it's on this particular day, on the day of lamb selection, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Here's what I want to really say. Jesus did not come just to celebrate Passover. Jesus came to be the Passover. Do you see how incredible that is? Do you see how life-changing that is? That Jesus did not come to just celebrate the Passover. He came to be it. He came to be the sacrificial Passover lamb so that by his blood, our sins can be white as snow. I want you to take another look at this passage. Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a colt. And, and in those days, a colt would be used to, uh, you know, it, it, it's not a pet that you would have in your backyard, but colts were used to carry heavy loads and heavy burdens. It would be used so that people would be free of carrying heavy things. Colts were used to carry things. They were used to carry people. They were used to carry 
loads. They were used to carry burdens. But I want you to take a closer look because on this Palm Sunday, I want you to know who's really carrying the weight, who's really carrying the burden, who's really carrying who. And may I suggest to you that on Palm Sunday, it's not the cult that's carrying the burden, it's Christ himself. Amen by myself. Like literally. On this Palm Sunday, Christ carries the burden. Christ carries our sins. Christ carries our suffering. And he's going to the cross. Jesus is carrying all our sins. Yesterday, today, and forevermore. He carries all our sins. And he's carrying the burden. And he's carrying it to the cross. Why does Jesus do that? Why does Jesus do that instead of defeating Rome? Why does he choose to go and die on a cross instead of defeating Rome? And here's why. Here's what you need to know. Because the real enemy was not Rome. The real enemy was sin. The Jews thought that the real enemy is Rome. But Jesus knew the real enemy was sin. You know, there's a lot of talk about the pandemic. There's a lot of talk about COVID-19 right now. I'm, I'm sure you guys are connected to the news and hearing about it maybe every single day. But I want to suggest to you that the real pandemic is not COVID-19. The real pandemic is not even SARS or swine flu or, or any other virus in the world. The real pandemic is the sin in our hearts. The real pandemic is not the one that we can catch outside of us. The real pandemic is the one inside of us. And I want to suggest to you that this pandemic is far more dangerous. It's far more deadly. And if not treated, this pandemic has a 100% death rate. It destroys destroys lives. Friends, I want to suggest to you that this pandemic, sin, can destroy and will destroy your life. It will lead you astray. It is not against you. I mean, it is not for you. It is against you. And so many, maybe, maybe this is where you still are, so many have fed into the desires of this sin, of this pandemic. But the wages of sin is death. You see, the true pandemic in our world today is not a health issue. It's a spiritual issue. But the one thing that COVID-19 and sin actually have in common, there's actually something they have in common. And it's this, that COVID-19 and sin has caused distance. They both cause distance. Because of COVID-19, we're having to live stream our services because we're not allowed to be together. We're, We're in isolation. Many of you guys feel that. You guys feel very alone. We call it social distancing. This virus has caused people to be distant from each other in much the same way Sin has the same effect. But this sin takes it a step further because it doesn't just separate people. Sin actually causes distance with God. This pandemic causes an eternal distance between God and man. But the good news is that God does not leave us at a distance. God actually goes the distance. He doesn't leave us where we are to fend for ourselves Jesus actually steps into our crisis. 
he steps into the real pandemic. He goes the distance, and God intervenes so that we can be reconciled back to him. He closes that gap that sin actually produced. He, 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 he comes, and he, he would become the mediator. He would become the one to reconcile God and man by his blood. By dying on the cross, he brings God and humanity back together. You see, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, as it says in Mark 11:11, it means so much more than just entering a city. It means that Jesus willingly enters humanity. He enters brokenness. He enters the crisis. He enters pain. And in doing so, he embraces suffering because he's actually going to the cross. Friends, I want to suggest to you that the Christian faith is one of good news because when there is a crisis, What I want you to know about God is that God does not look at the crisis and look at the situation and leave the scene. God does not leave the scene. If anything, God enters the scene. God comes in. God enters Jerusalem. God steps in, and God is with his people. Why? Because our God is compassionate. That word compassion is not to just describe someone that feels a certain way. But compassion literally means to suffer with. Jesus, who is full of compassion for the world, comes and he enters in to suffer with. And on the cross, ultimately, he suffers for. Jesus is with you. God is with you. And I want to close with this. Church, no matter what you're going through right now, and I assume that we all have different challenges, we're all going through different things right now, and with this COVID-19 situation that we're in, it could be a financial situation. It could be a situation where you just feel completely alone. You're restless, anxious, maybe depressed. Maybe you've lost your job, and, and I just want you to, No, and maybe God has sent me here today to remind you that God's in control, that God's with you, and he's full of compassion. And what that means is that you can actually lean into him. If God is with you, in response, my challenge to you would be this. Go and be with him. Go and be with him. In times like this, don't run from God, but run to God. Lean into him because God's in control. He wants you to see his character and he wants you to know his compassion. Would you close your eyes and pray with me?